and welcome back to The Bitten Word for our spooky episodes. I'm Ashley. I'm Christine. And today we're going to be talking to you about Neil Gaiman's Coraline and the other mother's lunch, actually. I know we said dinner last week, but it actually is lunch. (laughs) It's like a super involved lunch. Like, I don't think I would ever make this for a lunch, but whatever. Um, Who would make a whole chicken for lunch? I know, right? Like, it just seems ridiculous, but maybe that's kind of part of the draw for her. But we'll get into that in a minute. Um, So if you have never read Coraline, we are going to be talking specifically about the book today, not the movie. Um, It's the movie meal is slightly different than what is depicted in the book. And I am not a huge fan of the movie. I love the book, but the movie for me just fell a little flat. I don't know. It was, it was just, I didn't feel like it had the same vibe as the book, I guess. And so it didn't work for me very well. But if you have never read Coraline or seen the movie, then I I really, really encourage you to do this. I know I did this too with The Ocean at the End of the Lane. I said, read Neil Gaiman because Neil Gaiman is one of my very favorites. Um And I really, really do encourage you to read it. Even if you're an adult and you don't have any kids, like seriously, just go read it because it's that good. But we'll start out with a little bit of a synopsis for you if you don't know what's going on here. So Coraline is a young girl of indeterminate age, um, but young enough to where she still wants her rain boots to be shaped like frogs. So (laughs) it gives you some idea, right? And she was around 10-ish. Yeah, that's that's kind of my thought process, too. So she and her parents have moved into a new flat in a house that has been divided up in two pieces. Uh, there are other tenants in this house. There are the Mrs. Forcible and Spink, who are two elderly women retired from the theater. And we don't find out his name until the very end, but the awesomely named Mr. Bobo, who lives upstairs and in, he's in the movie his name is mr bobinski so oh that's a little well, different yeah not in the book in the book it's mr bobo and he spends his time supposedly training a mouse circus so she's moved into this house and it's summertime so she doesn't have school and her parents are home a lot but they are working. They work from home in their own separate spaces and they're separate from her. So she's kind of just on her own. They're not mean and they're not neglectful or anything, but they're like, here, go do your own thing. You know? So she decides that she's going to explore her house. Her dad says, count all the windows and count all the doors. And uh, one day when she can't explore outside anymore, and while she's doing that, she finds a door in their room. That's only for best. Um, so essentially like the living room, I guess, where all the nice the, things the are. Formal living room. Yeah. If you have a formal living room. I feel like that's not thing anymore. Like at least in America. Like mm. people don't do that unless you're really rich. Not really. <laughs> we had one growing up, but no and nobody ever we never went in there like ever. Um so she finds this door. She asks her mom about it and they open it up and it just leads to a brick wall. So they assume that it leads to this, you know, another flat on the other side of the house. Um, But the next time she's alone at home, 
she goes and gets the keys and opens up the door again. And this time it leads to a hallway. So she walks down it. And while she's walking down it, she feels like she's, there's something in there with her that's very old and very slow. Um, But she continues walking and she ends up in a place that looks exactly like her own flat. Like she can see a couple of minor differences, but they are so minor that it's, it's barely worth mentioning in her mind. It's exactly the same. Um, and in this place are her other mother and her other father. They look very similar to her parents with small differences. Things like the other mother is taller and thinner and paler than her mom. The most notable thing, though, is that they have black buttons for eyes. Gross. I know, right? That that right there, I would have been like, never mind, I'm going back. (laughs) But as Coraline is there and she's exploring, she finds that this world is more interesting and exciting than her own, which is kind of what she's been wanting. She At home, it seems like she's been bored. Uh, she hasn't had any attention from her parents. And she's kind of wanting everything to be just a little bit more. And in this new world, that's what she's getting. Her mother makes her food. Her other mother makes her food that she likes. At home, her mom will always cook things out of like packages and her dad will cook what she calls recipes, which just means that he's trying to be creative with his cooking and he might use a couple of ingredients. What? A lot of his food sounds really good though, actually. I know, right? Um, It does. He's just using things that maybe she's a little skeptical about and so she refuses to eat them. But this food is like exactly what she wants. And they say, go up and play in your room. And the toys there are like sentient, basically. They like run around on their own. There are things that fly around in her room. When she goes to visit uh, Miss Forcible and Miss Spink, they have a theater in their house. And there's a constantly going show with dogs in the audience watching. Honestly, Um, this whole thing just sounds like a bad dream. It kind of does because everything, it sounds exciting and it sounds cool, but everything is just slightly off, which is, if you've listened to our Ocean at the End of the Lane episode, something that Neil Gaiman does really, really well. Um, You can't always put your finger on what it is that's just slightly creepy about what's happening, but, but it does feel a little bit off. It's she goes, yeah, it is. She goes to visit Mr. Bobo and he has rats instead of uh, mice that he, I, they kind of like form him. I don't know. It's weird. But the rats are also really unnerving, especially if you listen to the audiobook version oh of this. Gosh, the rats are disgusting. <laughs> they sing these songs that are creepy in and of themselves when you're reading the book, but in the auto, like the audio version, they, I don't know what they do, but the voices are so nasty. It's they, terrifying. They're like high pitched and they sound like slightly mechanical. Like, yeah. And, and like, they just sound kind of off and like the whole thing is like, 
in like minor but also like what's what's the word i'm looking for it's like atonal oh yes and so the the song itself and the way that the rat sound is creepy but then the words are like we will be here when you fall and like stuff like that that's just yeah and she like doesn't notice yeah (laughs) i don't get that she doesn't even care she's like okay and walks on um you know what it makes me think of actually the way that they do it it makes me think of the powerpuff girls him you remember that oh my gosh the voice sounding that i couldn't watch powerpuff girls when (laughs) him was the villain because it was so disgusting to me i just could not even handle that voice him sounded more echoey yeah, I guess that's true. But it kind of had that high and low at the same time kind of thing going on. Yeah. Like it, like an overtone or something. And yeah. it's gross. Anyway, so she kind of finds this world interesting. And as she's kind of thinking that she's going to go home, the other mother gives her the option of staying here forever, that she will now be in their family and this will be her new home. In order to do that, though, she has to do just a little thing and let them sew buttons into her eyes. Gross. I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Of course, Coraline chooses to go home. But once she's there, she realizes that her real parents have gone missing. She's home alone for a couple of days. uh, And she calls the police and they just kind of pat her on the head and say, yes, yes, go get your mom. She'll make you feel better. Don't prank the police. Um, She, there's a cat that it, that can go in between the worlds and he talks in the other world, but he doesn't in the real world. And um, he's there and she's kind of using him for comfort, but she's, you know, talking to him about how, you know what, I know that she's taken them. And I am really scared, but I'm going to go do this thing anyway. I'm going to go back and I'm going to find my parents. So she goes over there again. And this time everything looks a little bit different. Um, It's not as amazing and awesome. She's starting to see that it has been created for her to entice her to come. And it's all off it's all kind of disintegrating so she goes physically losing some of its form yes and so are like the people that she encountered before the other mother looks slightly different you know scarier more like what she probably actually looks like um so she goes back she's trying to find her parents and while she's doing this, she finds the souls of three other children who have been trapped in the house previously. Now, they they all kind of come from, well, two of them come from older time periods in history. One of them, maybe even like Victorian times, based on some of the things he says. And one of them is actually a fairy. Um, oh, I missed that. Yeah, she has wings, and at the end, they have, like, a picnic in Coraline's dream, and she's eating flowers, not food. Um, But, yeah, so she finds these trapped souls, and she tells the other mother that she's going to play a game with her, and that if she finds her parents and the souls of the three children 
if she can find them, then she will let them all go. And she says, well, what will happen if you don't find them? And she said, I will stay here and be your daughter and we'll do all of the things that you want to do, you know, kind of a thing. So I'm going to leave it there because I want you to go read the book and find out how she manages to, you know, deal with this. Um, but it, it is really a creepy book. It is really, really well done. Now, I want to read you the quote that's at the beginning of this book. Online, it is often misattributed to Neil Gaiman himself, but it's actually not Neil Gaiman. He just put it in the front of Coraline. It's actually G.K. Chesterton. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. And, you know, I like that a lot. I, they're not at the moment, but I homeschooled my kids for a really, really long time. And that was something that was talked about a lot in homeschool literature is that fiction books are just as worthy, I guess, as nonfiction books, because you learn about life, because you can walk in somebody else's shoes and, and you learn that way. In this case, we do learn that even though this is a fantasy story, um, Neil Gaiman actually talks about in the introduction here that he has met a lot of women who say that when they've been scared to do something, they will remember Coraline and what she did when she was scared and go ahead and do it anyway. Interesting. That's, that's particularly interesting to me that it's women. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't know if like the women just specifically are identifying with Coraline mm -hmm. or if they feel like they have a harder time doing like brave things in the face of like, you know, frightening. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but he does specifically say he runs into women who tell him that Coraline got them through hard times. Um, so really interesting. He says, I'd wanted to write a story for my daughters that told them something I wished I'd known when I was a boy, that being brave didn't mean you weren't scared. Being brave meant you were scared, really scared, badly scared, and you did the right thing anyway. So he went into it intending to write it that way. That, that is the point that you are supposed to get out of Coraline. And that's why fiction is still good because you learn those kinds of things through fiction without necessarily having to go through those things yourself you know this is this is gonna sound really stupid but i used to watch the 90s batman a lot like the cartoon and something i always took away from that cartoon was like batman was always getting out of these like situations that seemed impossible or like overcoming these insurmountable odds and so from batman i always kind of took away the sense of like there's always a way yeah like even if you think like there's no way out even if you think you're trapped even if you're scared you think something's impossible like there's always a way you just have to yeah it. see that's what i'm talking about um from from all fictional sources so some th interesting things um neil gaiman has talked about some of the things that inspired him for this book. Uh, for example, the house layout is actually one that he had 
when his daughter was, his first daughter that he wrote this for was younger. When he was starting to write this book, he typed Caroline, but he wrote it wrong. And he wrote Coraline instead. You know how you do that sometimes. You miss up, you know, the typing. And when he looked at it, he was like, you know what? I know that that's somebody's name and I want to know what happens to her. So he kept it. Interesting. Yeah. So he stopped writing it when they moved to America. Um, And then six years later, when his daughter, Holly, that he had started it for was a little too old, he felt like for the book, but he had another daughter named Maddie. Uh, He started it exactly where he left off, like from the sentence that he left off and kept going. So the beginning, it says, I started this for Holly. I finished it for Maddie. Um, I know because he wanted to finish it while she was still young enough to really enjoy it. But when they moved, they he says that they lived in a very gothic looking house with like turrets and stuff that was built by a German immigrant some really long time ago, somewhere in the middle of America. Um. And that the house, okay, so it was very specific looking, right? And then when they were making the movie of Coraline, Henry Selleck had this guy like create the house or they kind of like together figured out what it was going to look like. And when they showed it to Neil Gaiman, he was like, that's my house. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they were like, what? And he was like, literally, that is my house. Like, it's got the porch and the tower and like all the stuff. And they were like, okay. He was like, well, I guess it was meant to be. (laughs) That's awesome. um, So, yeah, I thought that was really funny, too. That was really interesting. Um, Okay. So before we get into the food scene, I want to talk a little bit about the other mother. Okay. so. I was looking around and I randomly found that the other mother or one of the ghost children calls her the Beldam. I was wondering about that because I feel like I recently heard the term Beldam somewhere else and I don't know what it is and I've been meaning to look it up. Oh, good. So here you go. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. (laughs) So um, it's actually rooted in Eastern European folklore. The beldam, which is synonymous essentially with witch, is most often portrayed as a woman who lures children into her lair only to feast upon their flesh and souls. So is this like the witch from Hansel and Gretel? I don't know. Maybe. Actually, that's a really good thought. I mean, it doesn't say just feast on their souls. Well, it says flesh and souls. Oh, okay. So possibly, maybe maybe what we have is more like a diminutive version of that. Um, yeah, because she know. certainly doesn't seem to be as powerful as, like, the other mother. Uh, yeah, it does say that the other mother has some qualities that are slightly different. Um, but But that's why it's good, right? He took something that already existed and then created his own version, right? So Beldam literally means ugly old witch. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a shapeshifter whose true form is a giant spider, which I'll talk about in a minute in context of Coraline, because it's really interesting. So she's known to lure and feast upon her victims, most of whom are children, though she will munch on the occasional gentleman caller. Um, so 
This is interesting too. It says, according to Romanian lore, the bell dam was initially tasked by God to guard the forest. She grew to despise humankind for the atrocities they committed on the land she was sworn to protect, and she soon went from frightening away ne'er-do-wells to killing anyone who entered her forests. You see what global warming does? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. The beldam. Yeah, right. So this is interesting, too, because in Coraline, right behind her house, there is what she calls a forest. It's a bunch of trees that, yeah. Um, So I wonder if, and obviously the Beldam is like really old because there are these other ghost children there, right, who have been captured. So she's been there for a really long time. Um, Also, in, in the book, Miss Spink gives Coraline, after reading her tea leaves and seeing that she's in danger, very Harry Potter-esque. Um, she gives her a stone that has a hole in it. I guess this is called an adder stone or a witch stone, which was also used in these tales. And they're used to protect their owner from dark magic and help them see through illusions, um, which is the whole thing with the other mother. Okay, so she's if she is a spider, right, in real form, she would be making a web. And the cat actually talks to Coraline about this and says creatures like this just make things like this because it's a web to attract people. So flies will like get stuck in there, right? They just fly in because they're stupid. But (laughs) people, (laughs) people are a little bit more complicated. And so in order to attract and lure them, she has created this world that would look attractive to Coraline, that would make her want to stay there and trap herself there by voluntarily Mm -hmm. sewing her eyes with buttons, which would presumably then connect her somehow to the other mother. So uh, something I was thinking of when you were talking about the Beldum was that um, she eats bugs. That's true. Yeah. There's a scene where she like offers one to, to Coraline and she like opens this box and there's just all these bugs. Beetles, inside. yeah. Yeah. And then um I don't remember exactly how she's described towards the end of um the book, but in the movie she does look more and more spider like. Yeah. The further they go. That's true. Um, another thing that that lends to the spider thing is that when she goes back and everything is kind of deteriorating around her, she goes into the theater where Miss Spink and Miss Forcible are to find, to see if there's a soul there. And this part is terrifying in the book. I don't remember it in the movie. It's pretty scary in the movie too. It's gross. Um, but she goes in there and she sees the miss the other miss forcible and miss spink and they're like in a web sack attached to the wall um intertwined yes and they've got gooey nasty stuff around them and when she puts her hand in there to try to get the soul that is trapped of course in the grossest and worst place possible Mm -hmm. um she the way she describes it it feels like a spider web um so yeah 
Super interesting. It does say in this article, which by the way, if you want to read the whole thing, it's called, it's on ranker.com. Um, but her powers in the book and the movie are more expansive than what is portrayed in the folklore. Um, because she is like kind of creating and reshaping the world around her to be enticing, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, super interesting stuff. I I really I had no idea up until just now that 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 he had actually taken that from real folklore and you know, put his own spin on it. Something I wanted to to mention is that um I can't remember the exact details of the story, but it's something like when Neil Gaiman went to publish Coraline, his publisher read it and was like, there's no way you can publish this as a kid's book. It is way too scary. And he was like, well, have your daughter read it and see what she thinks, you know, because he really wanted Mm -hmm. it to be a kid's book. And so her daughter read it and she came back and she was like, she loved it. She's like, so I guess you're right. Like it's, you know, we can publish it as a kid's book. And he was like, okay. And then he said, like, years later, he was sitting at the premiere of the Coraline musical, which that what? That's yeah. a thing? I yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. So he said he was at the premiere of the Coraline musical and he was sitting next to the publisher's daughter, you know, who was now a lot older. And mm-hmm. he told her basically, like, you're the reason Coraline got published. Like, you know, you read it and you said it wasn't too scary. And so then your mom wanted to publish it. And she was like, it was terrifying. She said, this was the scariest book I've ever read. And he was like, oh, I thought <laughs> you told her it wasn't scary. And she's like, she's like, no, it was horrible, but I had to know what happened. And so, yeah. and so she, he was like, so she was right. It was too scary to be published as a kid's <laughs> book. Um, so I, I found when I was reading this story, I found someone who kind of like, did kind of a breakdown analysis of analysis of the book versus the movie and was mm-hmm. talking about how the movie is like less scary because of some of the changes they make. Yeah. And so they were saying like one of the things that makes the book so much scarier is that she's doing it completely alone. Whereas yes. in the movie they've created the character of YB. And so YB is there with her for most of the book. He, there's even an other YB who helps her you know, in the other world, except for the cat who is, you know, in and out and who sometimes talks and sometimes not terribly helpful. Yeah. Like she's pretty much doing it completely alone. So while I feel like, you know, maybe it wasn't super close to the book. I feel like the movie was well done. Like, I think it's true that some of the changes they made kind of tone it down for like a Mm -hmm. kid audience. And, and it, as a result, I mean, the book is really a lot more unsettling than the movie itself. Okay, so let's talk about the scene. So Coraline has gone down the hallway. She's entered this place and she sees that it's exactly like her own house, just very slightly off, but she can't quite figure out why. And it says she almost had it when somebody said, Coraline? It sounded like her mother. Coraline went into the kitchen where the voice had come from. A woman stood in the kitchen with her back to Coraline. She looked a little like Coraline's mother, only only her skin was white as paper. Only she was taller and thinner. 
only her fingers were too long and they never stopped moving, and her dark red fingernails were curved and sharp. Coraline, the woman said, is that you? And then she turned around. Her eyes were big black buttons. Lunchtime, Coraline, said the woman. Who are you? asked Coraline. I'm your other mother, said the woman. Go and tell your other father that lunch is ready. She opened the door of the oven. Suddenly, Coraline realized how hungry she was. It smelled wonderful. Well, go on. And then she goes and gets her other father. And they come back. And it says, he got up and went with her into the kitchen. They sat at the kitchen table. And Coraline's other mother brought them lunch. A huge golden brown roasted chicken, fried potatoes, tiny green peas, Coraline shoveled the food into her mouth. It tasted wonderful. It was the best chicken that Coraline had ever eaten. Her mother sometimes made chicken, but it was always out of packets or frozen and was very dry, and it never tasted of anything. When Coraline's father cooked chicken, he bought real chicken, but he did strange things to it, like stewing it in wine or stuffing it with prunes or baking it in pastry, and Coraline would always refuse to touch it on principle. She took some more chicken. See, Coraline's dad's out here making coca van. She's like, Ew. I know, right? <laughs> she's like, gross. On principle, she's not going to eat yeah. it, right? Um, so what she's making, and we talked a little bit before about this, how her mother is kind of like super bland and everything's gross. And her dad tries a little too hard for it. She wants something that's basic. Mm -hmm. She just wants the mm -hmm. thing itself nothing fancy but she does want it to taste like something right and this is what the other mother is offering her it's interesting because the the food in her real world is kind of like along with some other things that happen it's showing that she feels misunderstood and maybe unappreciated because her parents are not trying to do anything at least in her mind, they're not trying to appease her own appetites and desires. They won't buy her the color of gloves she wants. They won't buy her the frog boots. They don't make food that she likes. They also, she, because at this, when her dad is making recipes and I, Neil Gaiman said that his son used to do that to him, dad, you made a recipe again and then would just make his own food, which is what Coraline does, but they don't like get upset that she's just microwaving food or whatever that's mm -hmm. I guess just normal for their house so the other mother appears to be going to the trouble of doing something that Coraline actually wants uh, she's giving her the attention that presumably she's craving from her parents uh, she's saying you are appreciated here you are loved you are wanted I'm going to make you the food that you like right interestingly I found a what looked like a a thesis um, online from somebody who was talking about food as temptation in children's books. And she was saying that this, this book is a good example of that. A classic example of this we're going to talk about actually later this season is the Turkish delight in mm. the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Yeah. Um, and so we'll get into that a little bit more when we actually do that episode, but that's kind of a, a really good 
I guess, example of this. Also, another one that she mentioned would be Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which we already talked about because the chocolate is such a temptation for Charlie, especially when he knows he hasn't won and he has to spend his money on it, right? Which turns out good for Charlie, not good for Edmund. And it's a temptation for all the other children, too. I mean, Augustus falls in the Chocolate River because he can't stop eating it. Exactly. Yep. Um, And so... She was saying that this food, this meal that she's given there, that's what it's intended to do. It's another enticement by the spider saying, come here, it's better. And Coraline gives in. And she actually gives in later in the book too um, and eats a cheese omelet, but doesn't drink the hot chocolate. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I mean, if it's going to get you, then the omelet's probably going to do it too, right? Um, But she does once she realizes what's going on she stops eating the food uh she brings an apple with her from the real world and that's the only thing she eats besides the omelet when she comes back but it is at the end it's a children's book so i'm going to tell you she's okay at the end and when she returns home and her parents are safe again she eats her dad's recipes And it says even like artichokes and all or something, or she picked off the pineapple on the pizza or something like that because she didn't want that on there. But, but she ate it without complaint, which shows, I guess, her change of heart towards her parents. She sees that they actually do love her because the other mother says that she loves her, but she doesn't really, right? She's, she's trying to eat her like, (laughs) Which is interesting considering that the cat says that he thinks she wants something to love. Yes. And it does say in there that Coraline knows that the other mother does love her, but that she loves her like a thing, like something yeah. to be owned, not not real, healthy, good love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what she's getting from her parents, whether her life is perfect or not she is getting you know attention and love from them and it shows that at the end like at the beginning you're kind of like these parents kind of suck you know they're like just ignoring her but then at the end she comes and like gives her mom a hug and a kiss and she's like oh that was nice you know and gives her some attention and then she does the same to her dad and her dad like picks her up and carries her into the kitchen and they're smiling and stuff. So presumably these things happen, you know, yeah. uh, we just didn't see them before because Coraline's mindset was slightly different. Yeah. And we're seeing it through her eyes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So once she has seen, you know, what it could be like, she recognizes how good it is, what she has, and that she is really actually happy mm-hmm. with her life. Um, so this isn't in the book, but there's an interesting detail in the movie, um, where Coraline is given a cake by the other mother that says, welcome home, Coraline. And in the O's in welcome and home, or no, in the O's in welcome and Coraline, there's a single loop at the top because they're in cursive. And in, um, home, there's a double loop in the O. And apparently in handwriting analysis, a double loop is indicative of um, deceit. And so the implication there being that Coraline is welcome, but she's not home. Interesting. Huh. 
I wonder if they actually thought about that. They must have, because they why wouldn't have. they have made it look exactly the same as the other O? Yeah. That's interesting. The two other O's. But it's one interesting thing that was said, too, in this thesis that I was looking at. was saying that the way that Coraline is differentiated from these other stories that we've talked about that are food is temptation is that she doesn't wait for somebody else to save her. Um, They are all slightly different. Like I feel like Edmund for sure is a redemption story, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Charlie isn't really a redemption story. His is more being saved, right? Saved from his, well, I mean, being saved and redemption is kind of the same thing, but, but it's less moral and it's more just saving him from poverty and from eating cabbage soup every day for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's redemption in the movie when he turns in the gobstopper. I guess that's true. That's a change, but yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, and then this story, though, Coraline is the hero of her own story. She goes in and she does the saving. She's not waiting for somebody to save her. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was interesting. And that's why it's helped so many people, I guess, is because they weren't waiting to be, she wasn't waiting to be saved. She was scared, but she did it anyway. And she did the right thing. Well, and I think it makes a difference too, that she's A, a girl and B, a child. Yeah, for sure. Okay. It's time to try our simple, but not bland roasted chicken with peas and fried potatoes. Okay. So I have to confess that this minus the peas because I actually hate peas and I had to choke down <laughs> some peas today. But the uh, chicken with potatoes is something I make on a regular rotation. So this is something I actually really, really like. I I interpreted the fried potatoes as fried in the chicken fat, which is what I usually do. I'll roast them under the chicken. And the fat will fall in there and then fry the potatoes. So that's how I cooked it. Do your potatoes typically get really crispy when you do that? Um, The ones that are not directly under the chicken, a lot of them get really crunchy. Yeah. But they're like soft on the inside. Yeah. I boiled my potatoes first and then I roasted them. um, And they got like a really nice crunch to them, like while still being Mm. soft on the inside. That sounds Um, delicious. I did put rosemary on my potatoes because I figured that was kind of a simple, non-offensive herb. Yeah. Um, And then for my chicken, I did salt and pepper and then garlic powder because I was trying to think of like what could give this a lot of flavor, but that wouldn't be like super noticeable to a kid. Yeah. I literally put salt and pepper and olive oil on my chicken and my potatoes and that was it. I mean, the potatoes like soaked up all the chicken fat as it cooked. So that got some flavor and the peas, I just put salt on. I was, I was trying to stay as true to what Coraline might like as, as I thought, I don't know. I just went as simple as possible, but the thing is that it was still really flavorful. The potatoes are always flavorful. The chicken fat makes a big difference. Honestly, that's the thing. Like like chicken and potatoes both are so versatile like they both just have a lot of flavor on their own and so 
like, you know, kind of like with a good steak, like if you have a, an actual good quality steak or an actual good quality chicken, salt and pepper a lot of times is all you need to make it like mm-hmm. really good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, it's food is magic to me because you can do things that are really complex, like what Coraline's dad likes to do lots of different herbs and spices, different cooking techniques and stuff. And it tastes amazing. But then I can literally chop up potatoes, mix them with a little salt and olive oil, put a chicken on top. I didn't do anything to it except rub olive oil and salt and pepper on the skin. And all I did was put it in the oven. It literally takes me, you know, five to 10 minutes to prep this dish. And then I stick it in the oven and it's done. It takes like three dishes to do. And it also tastes amazing like it's weird to me I did go a little bit further with mine just because when I do when I make skin on chicken um I will typically salt it first and let it sit for a while yeah dry out yeah and then soak up the moisture that comes out of it and then bake it because that typically gives it a really really nice crispy skin which Mm -hmm. I really enjoy and I feel like it's you know, it's an extra step, but it is a very easy extra step. Yeah. You just have to remember to take it out, which yeah. I never do. I always forget. Um, but yeah, I was thinking like it's even though it is a very simple meal, it is a very satisfying meal. And so it is. I can understand how, you know, like a very simple meal well made could be very, very enticing for Coraline, particularly if she's you know because it sounds like if she was not eating her dad's food her options are whatever nasty stuff her mom is making or whatever she's able to make herself and so this Mm -hmm. is probably you know a big treat for her yeah for sure i it's i feel like it's a comfort meal this is one of those meals that it's not only satisfying to eat but it's satisfying to make like pulling a whole chicken out of the oven feels the same to me as like putting a pie on the windowsill to cool, you know, like, domestic, but like it, not in it an does. oppressive way and like a very homesteady like way. Yeah. Yeah. Very like, yeah, I guess homesteady is a good word for it. Um, just like a comforting, I'm, I'm doing something good for my family and good for, you know, me kind of way. It's like baking bread. I don't know, making staples like that just feels, I don't know, accomplished. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. When I have dinner parties and stuff, I like to make as much from scratch as I can just because it's yeah. an extra fun thing to be like, I made this cheese, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Because it's like, no yeah. one makes cheese. Yeah. I like doing that too. I don't know. I, well, I mean, cheese. I used to have a cheese cookbook. I literally made nothing from that cookbook because it was all like ridiculous instructions. (laughs) But ricotta is actually really easy to make. That one's good. Ricotta is very easy to make. Um, We make mozzarella a lot, which is a little more complicated, but it's still one of the easier cheeses to make. Mm -hmm, Because it's a fresh cheese. The dry cheeses or the aged cheeses are a little bit... They they will... They're yeah. finicky in like the, you have to have the right temperature to like keep them at and all that stuff. So it makes it a little hard. You need like a cheese cave. Yeah. I was going to say, that's the kind of thing where you need like 
a pl- like you need equipment and like a place to keep them because when yeah. it comes to like mozzarella and ricotta you need like cheesecloth and rennet you know yeah or not even that with with the ricotta that i make it's lemon juice like you don't even have to have rennet to make it do its thing so yeah sorry about that tangent about cheese i will not apologize for the cheese tangent <laughs> I wonder if Coraline likes cheese. She might like certain kinds of like cheddar. Mild cheddar. I don't know. Do you have mild cheddar in England? Is that a thing? Or is it just <laughs> big in your face cheddar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, mild cheddar here. I never buy mild cheddar because it tastes like absolutely nothing. Like, really, it tastes like nothing. I buy extra sharp when I can find it, but always sharp if not. Well, we always get the, like, I think we buy the Cabot, like, super extra mega shop. Oh, man, that stuff is so good. Mm, I love it. And the good thing about that is now my kids will eat sharp cheddar. They don't know anything different because I don't buy the stupid mild stuff because it's dumb. Yeah, Sterling will routinely ask me just for chunks of Parmesan or chunks of that Cabot cheddar and just eat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, you know what's really good? If you live by a Trader Joe's, they have this one called Unexpected Cheddar, which is like super sharp and it has those little crystals that sometimes cheese gets. Oh man, it's so good. I love it. I watched, we watched some documentary or something on like Parmesan and they talked about like those little crystals in Parmesan. Wasn't it like fat, salt, acid, heat? Was it? Maybe. I think it was. That was a documentary about episode. Cheese, but it was. <laughs> maybe. But yeah, she <laughs> talked about, about food. how it's like a sign of aging and it's like a sign of quality. Yeah, for sure. Mm, that sounds so good right now. Now I want a big wedge of Parmesan with those crystals in it. Mm. By the way, there are no recipes for these. These are just because these are kind of like staples, like things you should kind of know how to make. Um, so you I'll can put simple just, directions yeah. up on Instagram. You could also just look up like simple roast potatoes or simple roast chicken, you know. Yeah, there's no simple. real recipe for this. Um, I will put up directions, though, for you so you can just follow them there. Well, but... I say these are things you should know how to make. And then earlier we were like, how do you cook peas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. I literally microwaved my peas in the bag. I did, too. <laughs> it's just something we don't usually cook um (laughs) that's a good call so yeah uh that's all that we have for you today for Coraline and the other mother's lunch uh join us next week we are going to be going into the book American Dirt and making conchas I just finished this book like yesterday and I loved it so much. So I'm really excited to talk about it. It's so good. Go read American Dirt. Join us on our socials to see pictures and get the non-recipes that we have for you today. Our Instagram is at the Bitten Word Podcast and our Twitter is at the Bitten Pod. You can also reach us at the Bitten Word Podcast at gmail.com. And we still have yet to receive an email, so you know, oh my gosh, email us. Email us. <laughs> I would Tell love us anything that you want. Just email us and be like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, just say hi. And we'll be like, ha ha. 
that'd be awesome. And until we see you next week, happy reading and bon appetit.